Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Well, you know that John, uh, our author, wrote 1 John, of course, and 2nd and 3rd John, but you also know that before he wrote those shorter epistles, he wrote the Gospel of John, a much longer work nearer the beginning of the New Testament where he recorded from his vantage point the life of Jesus. And in writing about Jesus' life, four times John described himself as the author of the Gospel of John as, listen to this now, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. I've actually had some people come to me with great concern asking me about that title. They've said, was John being arrogant when he said that? Did he think in his mind, you know, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved and he merely tolerated all the other disciples? It might feel that way from time to time when you think about maybe Jesus' interactions with Peter or something like that, but that's, of course, not the case. Jesus loved all of his disciples. John understood that. John knew that. I think when he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was merely confessing the experience that he had with Jesus. And I just imagine how powerful it would have been to live with Jesus for those three and a half years to walk with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus. And we have people that we're close with, people that we love, people that we feel know us and that we know ourselves, but nobody is like Jesus. Just the way that you would feel so loved, so cared for. When he'd look into your eyes and speak into your heart or when he would listen to your words or when he would comfort John, he just felt, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's interesting because the very disciple who described himself as the one who Jesus loved, later in his life, he became known as the apostle of love. Uh, He was the one who, if you had to describe which disciple was the most loving of all the disciples, though they were all loving, we would Definitely, through looking at the words and the life of John, we would say John was the disciple of love. It was his main theme. It was his main heart. He loved, he cared, and he wanted us to love and to care as well. He had so received from God's love that he had become a loving man himself. And in the book of 1 John, over and over again, he exhorts us to that end. He tells us you need to Uh, Receive the love of God, and you need to be loving your spiritual siblings in Christ Jesus. Last week, we saw John begin to unpack this idea. He began to tell us that God is the source of all true love. Remember, I gave you the illustration of a great mountain range that collects the snow, and then in the springtime, the snow begins to melt, and great rivers John saw God like that great mountain uh, from whom the love of God flowed to the world around us. But John isn't done talking about God and his love. And so today we're going to learn a few different things. Number one, we're going to see that we must know the love of God. Number two, we're going to see that we must let God's love have its perfect work in us. And number three, we're going to see that we must agree with God about how his love works, because many times we disagree with the way that his love works. So let's look at the first point that I mentioned to you from verse 13 to 16. I'll put it on the screen for you, this singular point, and explain it to you over the next few minutes, that we must know the Trinitarian love of God. What that means, it just means we must know that the Spirit loves us, The Father loves us, and the Son loves us. The triune God loves his people. And we start out in verse 13 by looking at the love of the Spirit. Let's read it together. He says, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. 
Now we begin this little section here with another one of John's by this we know statements. Six times in the letter, John uses this phrase, by this we know. And here he's using the phrase to point back to the verse that we ended on last week, chapter four, verse 12, where he told us that God is abiding in us, that we are to abide in him. And here he looks back and then forward by telling us in verse 13 that we know that we abide in God, we abide in him, and here's a way that we know this, because he has given us of his spirit. In other words, John is simply saying, we know that God is in us, we know that God's alive in us, we know that God abides with us, because he put his Holy Spirit to live inside of us as his people. And that indwelling presence of God's spirit in the life of a Christian is the greatest evidence that the, that the Lord himself is living inside of us. And many of you know this, that the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches in places like Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that when you become a Christian, when you're regenerated, when you confess the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Jesus called it being born again. Look at the way that Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You see, in the Old Testament era, there were a lot of tabernacles and temples that God said he would live in. It started with God telling Moses to build a tabernacle to certain specifications and that God would live inside the inner room of that tabernacle, the holy of holies, and that he would be there in the center of the people of Israel. Then when Solomon came along, David's son, he turned the tabernacle into a permanent structure and built a stone temple that was glorious. And there were times when the Israelites were attacked and that temple was raised, but they would rebuild it time and time again until the time of Jesus. But then Jesus came along and through the gospel, through the cross of Christ, made a way for the Holy Spirit not to dwell inside the holy of holies in a physical structure, but no longer in a temple, but inside of us, inside of his people, dwelling within us. So you and I today are now the new temples of the Holy Spirit. There is no earthly temple here on earth because God lives in us. It's part of the reason why you'll hardly ever hear me. Sometimes I'll slip and say it in a certain way, but you'll hardly ever hear me refer to the church building as the church. I refer to people as the church, the gathering as the church. This is a facility. This is a campus that we can use when we gather together to glorify God together. But for John, when he thought about the Holy Spirit living inside of us, to him, it was a massive evidence of God's love for his people. Because in his mind, the reason that God lives inside of us is because God wanted to live inside of us. He desired to make our hearts, our bodies, his home. And I was thinking about this this last week, just the fact that the Spirit of God He wants us. He wants to know us so much so that he lives inside of us. And I was thinking about how rare it is in the world that we live in today to have someone desire to know us in that kind of way. They've actually invented a word that is becoming more common in our modern vocabulary. Maybe some of you know this word, and if you don't, I'll teach you this word. But it's the word fubbed, P-H-U-B-B-E-D. It's the combination of the word phone and snubbed. And uh, maybe you've had the experience of being fubbed before. What happens is you're in a group, or maybe you're with a person one-on-one, and you're spending time with them. You're trying to talk with them. You're trying to open up your heart to them. You're trying to get to know them and for them to get to know you. And all of a sudden, maybe at a group sitting at a table or maybe even one-on-one, that person pulls out their phone and they start scrolling or doing their own little thing on their phone as you're just there going like, okay, I guess you don't want to hear what I have to say. You have been fubbed in that moment. (laughs) And because it's so common for people that are in groups together to just sort of dip out and start focusing on other things, it actually becomes uh, 
more of a standout experience, I think, in our modern age when someone takes the time to look you in the eye, listen to what you're saying, ask you follow-up questions and not just jump into their next subject whenever you're done talking. It's a feeling that makes you, you, you sense this person, they want to know what's going on inside of me. They want to know me. You feel their love in that moment. But here, what John is telling us is that God had that same sense with us in that he wanted to reside inside of us. He wanted to, to experience us, to, to know us, to make our bodies, our hearts, his home. The idea from John is that the Spirit wants everything to do with us. He wants for us to know him and for him to know us. So that's the love of the Spirit. Well, let's move on in verse 14 and see the love of the Father. It says in verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son. And I'll pause the reading right there to just consider the Father. John says here that the Father is also involved in our lives. How is he involved in verse 14? Well, he says that not only did he give us the Spirit, but he gave us his only begotten Son. We know this. This is the gospel. And when the Father sent the Son, he was expressing his love for you and for me. And I think it's neat to highlight this aspect of who God is, because I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about the Father. I think many people think that the Father is hesitant to forgive, that he's slow to be gracious and merciful. And maybe one reason why they get that idea are verses like 1 John 2, uh, verse 1, which tells us that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And verses like that might cause a believer to wrongfully think that the Father really doesn't want to forgive, doesn't want to extend his love, but praise God, we have this advocate on our team, Jesus, who's trying to talk the Father into forgiving us. But verses like that aren't meant to tell us that there's some kind of divergence of opinion inside of the triune Godhead. They're merely meant to show us a difference of roles inside the triune Godhead that the Son is perpetually holding up to the triune God our righteousness that's imputed to us when we believe in Jesus. He's continually reminding the fullness of who God is. This person, they belong to us. They are covered by my blood. They are forgiven and redeemed and cleansed. That's the role of the Son. But the Father, he is perpetually celebrating what the Son has produced in our lives. He is the one, it says here, who sent the Son in the first place. So when you see the activity of Jesus, when you see the love of Jesus, when you see the cross of Christ, you're looking into the very heart of God the Father himself. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus' love is evidence of the Father's love. John had seen and testified that Jesus was merely carrying out the Father's will. In fact, of all the Gospels, John's Gospel makes that the most clear. In John's Gospel, Jesus would often say things like this, I always do that which pleases the Father. And so the cross, it was the Father's desire and design you can see his heart in what Jesus did for us. But let's move on in the passage and look at the love of Jesus himself. It tells us at the end of verse 14 that when Jesus came, he came to be the savior of the world. And then he says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So what have we seen so far? We've seen the love of the spirit that he wants to abide in us. We've seen the love of the Father, that he loved us so much that he sent his son. But here we see the love of Jesus, that he decided to come in order to be the savior of the world. And to confess that Jesus is the son of God who came to save us from our sins means that you belong to God, verse 15, and God belongs to you. He abides in you and you abide in him. In other words, Jesus loved us so much that
that he saved us, becoming the savior of the world there upon that cross. You know, we were separated from God. God is love, the Bible teaches, but our sin was a wall that kept his love from having access into our lives. But the cross of Jesus Christ makes way for our sin to be dealt with and for that wall to come down so that the beautiful love of God can penetrate into our lives. So there it is, the love of the Spirit, the love of the Father, and the love of the Son. Let's see what John says next in verse 16. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John says here in verse 16 that we've come to know, we've come to believe the love that God has for us. If you're a Christian today, you can make that confession. I came to a place where I began to know, I began to believe the love that God had for us. And here we're learning it's a robust love, spirit, father, son, the triune God aiming his perfect love at us. That's why John repeats something that we saw him say last week. In verse 16, he says, again, God is love. And if someone abides in love, he says, it's like they're abiding in God, and God is abiding in them. What does that mean? Well, think of it like this by analogy. Let's imagine somebody down at our coast right now, you know, just standing on the beach, maybe dipping their toes in the water. And let's imagine this person is from out of town, so they don't know that the water is like 26 degrees, you know? <laughs> And the sun begins to shine, and they're thinking to themselves, man, this would be a great day to go for a swim. I'm getting a little warm. I want to go for a swim. If they were to say, I want to go in the water, and they went in the water, they would also be going into the Pacific Ocean. If they said, I want to go into the ocean, and went into the ocean, they'd be going into the water. You cannot have one without the other. That's what John is saying. He's saying if you're swimming in love, you are swimming in God himself. And to abide in God is to abide in love. The full blast of who he is, the spirit and father and son, he's aimed at us. Did you know that before the worlds were created, the triune God, father, spirit, and son, was in perfect harmony within his singular self. Love was being expressed. Love was not invented when you and I were created. God was sufficient within himself. He is love. And so it existed within the Trinity. But one day, God came and spoke us into existence. He said in Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God's desire in that moment is that we would experience what he had to offer, that we'd experience in his likeness, his love, his care, his image upon us. And he is still working hard to make that clear to a people whom he loves here on earth. He wants us to know about his love for us. And John tells us here in these verses that this is a process that Christians go through. Look at verse 16 again with me. He said there, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Come to know. Come to believe. Those words, those phrases, to me, that's the language of process. It's a process to learn about the love of God. You know, yesterday, uh, that we had a wedding here in the church, uh, Joey and Bethany Seekman, and Bethany was formerly Bethany Kripe, and she grew up in this church. In fact, 18 years ago, she was uh, one of Christina's students when Christina was a kindergarten teacher. And so it's just been neat to watch her grow up and meet this young man, Joey, and they just love each other so much. And yesterday was a testament of their love. They actually stood here on this stage and platform, and they uh, professed their vows to each other. They were saying to their friends and family, you know, we love each other. God has brought us together, and we're committing to love each other for the years to come. And neither of them would have made those vows if they didn't already know that they loved each other. They were sure of and in each other's love. But what they're now supposed to enter into for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years is an outworking of that love that they've professed. 
They're to discover each other's love and give each other love for the rest of their lives. And they're going to love each other in ways that they've never even known about at this, you know, juvenile beginning kind of state of their relationship. And so it is with us as the bride of Christ. At conversion, we were betrothed to Jesus. The cross showed us in that moment that we are loved by God. But through the duration of our lives, both now and through all of eternity, we will be discovering in fresh ways in our marriage to him the love of God for us. We will be experiencing his love forever. All right, so this is the first thing. We must know of the Trinitarian love of God for us. But we have to take it past just knowing about it, and we have to let it, number two, be perfected in us. So we have to let love, number two, have its perfect work in us. Let me show you what I mean as we read verse 17 together. He says, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. I think when John writes this, he's alluding to something that is an all too common and unfortunate experience for many Christians. I think many Christians begin, of course, understanding that God loves them. They look at the cross and can't come to any other conclusion. The Spirit opens their eyes. They receive the love of God for them. But too often, Christians then proceed to live life that is nervous around God, skittish around God, fearful of God. But John tells us there in verse 17 that it's possible for a Christian to be confident, confident around God, so confident around God that, that we can have confidence, he says in verse 17, for the day of judgment. Now, I'll admit that the day of judgment, that isn't usually the kind of phrase that you use to make yourself feel really confident around God. <laughs> you know, if, if somebody comes to you and they're like, man, you know, I I, I felt the love of the Lord before. I just feel very distant from him right now, though. I just, I don't know if he loves me. I don't know if he cares about me. It's probably gonna be pretty rare that you then say in response, well, don't worry, just think about the day of judgment. <laughs> and we should think about this theme or this phrase, the day of judgment, before we move on, because for the Christian, the day of judgment is not a day which determines, am I in or am I out? No, Jesus said that that day is done away with for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. But what the Bible does teach is that even though we won't have a day where we stand before the Lord to figure out, am I in or am I out, and the determination is made, we will have a moment at the end of our lives, secure in Christ, where our lives, we must give an account for them. Did I live for the things of eternity or the temporary realm? Did I live for God or did I live for the self? But our eternal destiny has already been secured in Jesus Christ if our faith in him has been legitimate. But John seems to think that if God's love is perfected in you or perfected in me, we can come to such a place that we are confident before God so that even when the day of judgment comes, the day our lives are assessed, that day is no longer a feared event in our lives. And that's pretty radical confidence to come to that kind of place. How can someone gather that kind of boldness. Well, John says in verse 17, look at it with me. He says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So what does John mean when he says that? As Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Well, one possibility is that part of God's love being perfected in us is that we begin to love like Jesus. So in other words, it's like we're ingesting God's love 
and it changes us to be like Jesus. You can understand this by way of an analogy. Let's imagine somebody that we know that uh, for the last 10 years, they've only ever eaten perfectly. You know, they've never overeaten. They've eaten the right things at every single meal. They've gotten the perfect balance of protein and carbohydrates and fats, and they're always eating uh, in a healthy way. They don't have a sweet tooth. They never lose self-control. Don't you hate this person already, okay? And, And as you're imagining this person in your mind's eye, I guarantee you that person's fit, right? They're in shape. You subconsciously are thinking that if they're consuming like that, it's going to show up in their outward appearance. Perhaps that's a concept that John is alluding to here, that as we feast on the love of God, it can't help but be lived out through us to where as Jesus is, so are we in this world. We're we're like him here on earth. But I think that there's more to what John is saying. Because the reality, I think we all know this, is that we're not like Jesus all the time. But the Bible does teach that though we're not like Jesus all the time, we do always have the position that Jesus has before the Father all the time. Listen to this from Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 6. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's way of describing just how fully accomplished the work of grace in our lives is done in the sight of God. We're seated here in this building this morning, but God looks upon us and he says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places if you're a believer in Jesus. And knowing this about yourself, knowing who you are, that you're so secure, it's as if you are already seated with Jesus in heaven, that can give you radical confidence before God, knowing that your position in Jesus is totally secure. Think about it like this. I remember being in in elementary school, and I don't know why we did this. I don't know why it was a thing, but we had elementary school class officers, you know, president, vice president. I don't know what all the other offices were, but I remember when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I made the decision that I was going to run for one of those offices. And I don't remember what it was, but I just remember it was a stressful time in my life. You know, you, you had to campaign, you had to put up posters, and then terrifyingly, you had to give a speech to the whole school. Part of the reason I don't remember what I ran for is because the one thing I do remember is that I lost that election. <laughs> and I, didn't, I didn't win whatever office it was that I was shooting for. And I just remember it was a real nail-biting kind of experience. Oh, today's the day. They're going to vote. They're counting the votes. I was just in my little fourth or fifth grade mind, super stressed out. All right, compare this to an experience I had years later. It was my senior year of high school, and they were trying to get people to run for different offices. And I thought, okay, I think I'm over it now. It's been a lot of years since I was voted against. And so I'm going to run for office again. I decided to run for uh, an office called Athletic Commissioner. They told me you didn't have to do very much. So I thought, great, that sounds good. And nobody else ran. In our small little school, I was the only candidate. And you know what? The whole experience was just awesome. You know, I think I made a poster. When it came the day to give a speech, I didn't even prepare. I just kind of walked up and said, hey, I'm Nate. I'm the only person running for athletic commissioner, so please check my name on the day that the votes go out. I had a lot of confidence, and when the votes were cast and being tallied, I had no worries at all. I knew that that position was a lock. Look for us in Jesus Because we're in Christ, if we're believers today, it's a lock. We're solid and secure in him. Our position in him is secure. As he is, 
so also are we in this world. So as a result, confidence before God is ours. But he goes on to talk about how this practically plays out in our lives in verse 18. So let's read that together. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here what John tells us is that when love has its perfect work in you, you, when you know that you're in Christ, you don't have any fear before God. You're confident with God. God's perfect love, when you understand what it is, it casts out that trepidatious kind of experience with him. You're no longer nervous around God. And because fear has to do with punishment, someone who still fears punishment, John says, has not been perfected in love. Now, for the student of Scripture, this brings up a question. Because the question would be, doesn't the Bible teach that the fear of the Lord is a good thing? I mean, think of this phrase. I'll put it on the screen for you. Proverbs 9, verse uh, 10. Uh, there's, this, is, this kind of statement is found often in the Old Testament, especially the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes you'll hear this kind of thing, you know, that that person, so-and-so, they just have such a fear of the Lord, and it's being said in a good way. They have a fear of the Lord. But John comes along here, and he tells us that perfect love gets rid of fear. But Proverbs and other passages tell us that knowledge and wisdom, it all starts with having a fear of the Lord. So how do we reconcile those two concepts? Well, the answer is really simple. Proverbs is talking about respect reverence, and awe for God. John is talking about paranoia, fright, and apprehension before God. And basically, the closer you draw to God in his love, the more your fear or paranoia of God goes down and your fear or reverence of God goes up. Because he's love, the paranoia, fright, and apprehension vanishes, and because he's holy, the respect and reverence and awe goes up. So John here tells us that the person who still fears punishment, that's someone who fears in that paranoid or frightful or nervous way, they've not been perfected in love. This is part of the reason why when at the beginning of the teaching today, I said, we're going to talk about the love of God. Would anybody like to hear about that? So many of you smiled and said, oh, yeah, I need to hear about the love of God. It's because we're still growing, still being perfected in our knowledge of God's love. And when we hear about it, think about it, or grow more fully into it, it sets us at ease. It helps us become bold because once we know how God feels about us, we feel strengthened for everything which is against us. And God is about this process of strengthening you, perfecting you in his love. This is why he tells us that whoever fears has not been perfected in love, but that there is no fear in love because perfect love or growing perfect in our understanding of God's love, it casts out all fear. There's a story in the Old Testament, one of my favorite characters, of this man named Gideon. He lived during a real dark time in Israel's history where the people of Israel constantly wandered from God and attached themselves to false gods, false uh, idols. And as a result, because they were God's covenant people, he would have to lift some of the blessings away from them for a time. And that included the protection that he so often gave to them. So one day Gideon uh, was threshing wheat and he was doing it inside of a wine vat. And the reason he was doing that is because he was hiding from the Midianite people who were oppressing Israel at that time. Every time Israel reaped a harvest, the Midianites would come in and take that harvest for themselves and keep the people of Israel oppressed in poverty. So one day the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon while he was hiding in that wine vat. He's already afraid. And the angel of the Lord speaks to him, calls him a mighty man of valor, says to him, look, you are going to be the one that delivers the people of Israel from this servitude to the Midianite people. I'm going to 
Use your life. You know what Gideon's reaction was? I already told you he was a fearful guy. His reaction, the way he thought about it was, I am seeing the angel of the Lord, therefore I am going to die because I've seen the Lord. And so he said that, and the angel of the Lord had to kind of talk him off the ledge, like, hey, no, that's not how it worked. I came to tell you that you are going to deliver the people of Israel. So he believed. And God told him, I want you to cast out the idol of Baal that's inside your community. Like I said, Gideon was a fearful man. So instead of going in the middle of the day and saying, thus says Jehovah, thus says the Lord of Israel, instead in the middle of the night he went and got that Baal idol and destroyed it and moved it out of the way so that in the morning when everyone came, they're like, hey, what happened to Baal? And somebody found out it was Gideon and somebody was like, let's kill Gideon. And then fortunately somebody rose up and said, don't you think if Baal's a real God, he could defend himself? And they're like, oh yeah, that's a good point. And they let Gideon live. (laughs) So he had the hand of God upon his life. But then the next stage of his development he goes back to God and he says, God, I'm, I'm really not sure that you've called me. I mean, he had an angel in a wine vat, but he's like, I'm not sure that you've called me. So will you give me a miraculous sign that what you've said is true? God gave him a, mirac- a miraculous sign in the middle of the night. And then he says to God again the next night, would you give me another miraculous sign? Like I said, he was just being strengthened by the Lord, and and God obliged. And then it came to the point where an army gathered to Gideon, and that was a sign of God's favor upon his life. God had to whittle down the size of the army. It was so huge. 32,000 soldiers came to be with him and give them, lend him their support. But it was too big. God knew that if they won the victory, they would take the credit. So God devised a means for that army to be whittled down to only 300 men. But the night before the battle, God spoke to Gideon one last time. He said, Gideon, if you're still afraid, then go down secretly to the outskirts of the camps of the camp of the Midianite people and see what they have to say. And Gideon, still afraid, took God up on his offer, took his servant with him and went down to the edge of the camp of the Midianite people. And he overheard one Midianite talking to another. And the guy said to his friend, I had a dream. And in my dream, there was barley bread rolling down the hill, and it knocked over all of our tents and destroyed us. And his friend said, oh, I know what that dream's about. It's about Gideon. He's going to destroy us. Like, that's the logical conclusion. Barley bread, that's Gideon. But God was using that to show Gideon, I'm on your side. Look what I'm doing. I'm preparing the way for you. I tell that story because I think that's what God so often wants to do for us. Like he strengthened Gideon, he wants to strengthen us in his love. He wants to make us confident in the love of the Father. All right, let's look at the last section, verse 19 to 21. This third section, I say it like this, we must agree with God about how love works. Look at this final point that John makes. He says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Isn't that a beautiful verse? That's that's one that's worthy of being underlined in our Bibles. We love because he first loved us. This is how God works. First, it comes from God to us. God's love comes first to us before it goes anywhere else. He is the great initiator, John is telling us. I've thought about this initiation from God in a lot of different ways, but one example that comes into my mind is from 18 years ago before Christina and I got married when we were just friends. We were in that dreaded friend zone. And I was, for a little season, trying to figure out how she felt about me. And I was looking for any clue that I could find to give me some sense of confidence, some kind of green light, you know, like maybe touch my hand or something like that, or put your hand on my shoulder, or look in my eyes a little longer than uh, normal, or something like that. But she gave me no clue. She was a vault. I had no idea. So eventually, it got to the point where I realized, okay, I need to initiate. 
I was pretty confident she wasn't going to reciprocate, but that was just the place I was at. The ball is firmly in my court. I have to initiate in this relationship. And praise the Lord, when I did, she said, I feel the same way about you. And I praise the Lord. And I've thought about that because God, of course, is the one that we learn in this verse who initiated with us. But that's as far as my little analogy goes. Because what I discovered with Christina was that she felt a similar way towards me. But God initiated towards us when we did not feel the same way about him. We were rebels. We were running from God. We were dead, the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins. We were not looking for him. We were not desiring him. There is none who seeks God, the Bible says. No, not one. We did not care for him. We were spiritually deceased. But in our deadness, God's love broke through. It penetrated into our hearts. He woke us up. He shattered our chains and broke through the lies to shout his love for us and to us. This love is so radical. This love from God is so good. Remember a couple weeks ago in our life groups how we took a break from discussing the text of the sermon and we instead discussed the prodigal, uh, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Tim Keller has a beautiful description of one of the things that we can learn from that parable in his book, The Prodigal God. He says it this way, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've deliberately oppressed or even murdered people or, or how much you've abused yourself. The younger brother knew that his father's house, in his father's house, there was abundant food to spare. But he also discovered that there was grace to spare. There is no evil that the father's love cannot pardon and cover. And there is no sin that is a match for his grace. That's amazing. That's a great description of God who loved us first. But how does God's love work? Well, it comes to us first, but secondly, we then love God in return. Notice in verse 19, John said, we love because he first loved us. And it's clear that what he's thinking is we love God because he first loved us. Because in verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God. So the way God's love works is it comes first from God to us, and then we respond in love back to God. But then there's a third stage. It says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, John says he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, John I'm sure you've noticed this in this whole letter. He's very black and white. He's a straight shooter. And what he says is, if someone says, I love God, but they're not loving their spiritual sibling, then they're actually a liar. He calls them a liar. He, he had a heart and a desire to have a pure Christianity. You know, he, he was always concerned with three major lies. He was concerned about the person who said, I'm living my own morality but really was living in disobedience to God. That was lie number one. He was concerned about the person who was living a doctrinal lie, that Jesus saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And he was also concerned about a social lie, someone who said, I can love God without loving my brother or sister in Christ. And so he talked about that. He said, look, the hatred is an absence of love. This is how God's love works. It flows to, to us we receive it and return love God, and after experiencing God, who is love, we then turn and love others. In John's mind, he cannot fathom a God who is love being experienced by a person without then God's love flowing from that person to other people. He says one cannot love the invisible God without loving God's visible people. But I think this is a myth that we often believe is possible. We think that we can love God without loving his people. But John tells us that's not the case. We can't be a people who say, you know, I, I love God because, I mean, he's perfect, he's pure, he's so easy to love. 
It's just his people that I have the hardest time with. Now, that's not to say that it isn't difficult at times to love God's people, but it's a myth to think that we can dispense with the idea of loving others. John Stott, in his book, Christian Mission in the Modern World, said it this way. He said, a Christianity which would use the vertical preoccupation, another phrase for our relationship with God vertically, as a means to escape from its responsibility for and in the common life of man is a denial of the incarnation of God's love for the world manifested in Christ. You see, love for God goes hand in hand with love for our spiritual siblings and also for others. So we have to remember John's point here. Some, some forms of theology emphasize others so hard that they begin to neglect their love for God. And some forms of theology highlight God to the point that they begin to look down on others. But good and healthy theology causes us to love God and the people who are made in God's image. That's how love works. We receive it, we then give it back to God, and then we extend it to other people. So what have we seen today? We've seen that we must know the Trinitarian love of God, that we must let love have its perfect work in us, and that we must agree with God about how love works. So let me close with a handful of a few uh, applications. There could be hundreds. I'm going to give you seven this morning. Just some implications of a passage like this. I'll put them on this screen for you. One of the first things that I would say is this. If, if, if we're in a process of learning about God's love, being perfected in love, then we should, number one, ask God to open our eyes so we can see his love more fully. There's biblical precedent for this. Uh, because the prayers of Paul the Apostle especially were geared towards praying that the church would have their eyes open to know about the love of God in their lives. So we can join with Paul, pray for ourselves and others that we would be able to see the love of God more fully. Number two, if, if, if growing in love or knowing God's love leads to this kind of life, if that's kind of like mission critical, that we would know about God's love or grow in God's love, then we should, number two, make growing in God's love a major goal of our lives. You know, we'll set New Year's resolutions or have different, you know, I want to diet like this, I want to exercise like this, I want to read this many books, but we should have in our hearts this thing that says, you know, one goal that I have is I want to know more about the love of God. I want to grow in that understanding and knowledge. Number three, every time you are nervous about God, pause and discover the reason. Don't just dismiss the thought, but pause and discover the reason. Is it because you aren't conscious of God's love, like John says here? Or is it because you've been behaving really unlovingly towards someone else and the Spirit is trying to convict you? Uh, is it because there's some major unconfessed sin in your life that is blocking God's love from having access, practically speaking, to your heart? Don't let the moment pass by without asking the Holy Spirit for wisdom as to why you're feeling that way. Number four, during this season, the season we're in right now, remember that Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is based off of what John said in verse 14. He said that, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So what do I mean by remembering that Jesus is the Savior of the world in this season in particular? Well, I mean it in two ways. First of all, we're entering into Christmas season, okay? We know that. We got decorations going up. We finally broke down yesterday, and Christmas music for the first time came into our house yesterday. We gave in, and it felt so good. But as you're going through it, and there's you know, all these festivities and all of that, remember Jesus. Remember the baby who was born into the world to save the world. He's the savior of the world. So remember him. He's the savior of the world. But another thing that I mean by this season that we're entering into is that we're obviously coming into our nation's presidential election season. And along with it, all the acrimony and division of such a time. And in a time like that, it's good for Christians to remember that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I think the enemy always wants to draw our attention to the world and worldly solutions 
for the problems we see in the world. And of course, if you're an American citizen, I'm sure like me, you've praised the Lord for the uh, grace of being able to live in a democracy and have a say in what's happening in our world. But just remember that Jesus is the ultimate healer of the catastrophe of this world. He came to be the savior. And he's got a kingdom that's greater than any earthly citizenship. And so as much as we're concerned with our world and our nation, we have to fight to give Jesus' kingdom its proper place in our heart, its proper recognition. Okay, number five, recognize the enemy's hopes to drag you into racism. I know that the text doesn't explicitly talk about this subject, but doesn't it just stand out as a natural uh, application of the idea of God loves us, we then love God, and then we extend his love to the world that we live in, especially our spiritual siblings, but of course, as Jesus taught us, we're to love our neighbor as ourself. The enemy of our souls, though, would love to drag us into stereotyping people or a more insidious version of hate than even that, and we just can't give into it. We have to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters who are also bearing the image of God here on earth. There's no room for prejudice inside the heart of God's people. And I think a text like this helps us see that. Number six, application, love your brother by serving in the church or joining, joining a life group. I know I say this one all the time, but it's because people need to hear this all the time. You know, help out in the church. There's always a need. This is a great way to love others. Or join a life group. It puts you with other Christians that you can grow in your experience of love with. And then lastly, number seven, make a list of fellow Christians and pray for them. Make a list of fellow Christians and pray for them. I guarantee you, if you make a list of 10 or 20 or 30 Christians that you know and you start praying for them, you're going to start growing in your love for them. You're going to be concerned about their lives. You're going to want to know if God is answering your prayers. You're going to want to know how to better pray for them. Your heart will grow as you lift them up to God in prayer. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.